Hi all, thanks for listening to Coast Strange Radio, a radio program of the Coast Strange Association. My name is Andrew. Feel free to reach me at andrew at coaststrange.org. To hear past episodes, visit coaststrange.org slash coaststrangeradio. You can also download and subscribe to Coast Strange Radio on your favorite podcasting service. We hope everyone is staying healthy and safe as we continue to navigate the hardships of this year. With the compounding social, racial, economic, and climate crises, thank you for all that you do to stay involved and make a better world possible. In this interview, I'm speaking with Charlie Plybon. Charlie is the Organ Policy Manager for the Surfrider Foundation. We discuss his work on Oregon's marine reserves, rocky habitat protection, ocean plastic pollution, climate impacts to the Oregon coast and nearshore waters, and some updates on ocean and climate policy in Oregon. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. This is Coast Range Radio, and I'm really excited today. We're speaking with Charlie Plybon. Charlie is the Oregon Policy Manager and founding member of the Newport, Oregon chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. And he's also a member of the Oregon Ocean Policy Advisory Council. And uh, hey, Charlie, thanks for coming on to Coast Range Radio. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thanks so much, Andrew, for having me. Yeah. And um, so what brought you to Surfrider? What is the Surfrider Foundation? And uh, yeah. Sure. So the, the Surfrider Foundation is a nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to the protection and the enjoyment of our oceans, waves, and beaches. Um, so I, I got involved with Surfrider because I love the coast. Uh, I love the beach. I love the ocean. Uh, I wasn't actually a surfer when I first started uh, getting involved with Surfrider Foundation, as neither are a lot of our members. And so our name uh, is a little misleading sometimes. Uh, but we, we do obviously represent a lot of recreational users and people that resonate um, with that mission statement um, and love the coast. And so what, that's what brought me to Surfrider. Um, I, I eventually learned um, from some some water contact and other things that the, the water in Newport wasn't um, the healthiest in the ocean. And I realized that there was limited testing programs from the state. In fact, there were no testing programs from the state at the time. And so uh, Surfrider gave me the capacity and the know-how to do some community organizing. I started a water quality lab, founded a chapter. We organized and, uh, yeah, we started doing our own water quality monitoring here at the ocean um, to let beachgoers know uh, whether it was safe to get in the water. We um, uh, made a difference and a meaningful difference in a problem and a pollution issue and worked with the city council as an organized group to, to solve some of those problems. Some of them that we're still working on today, but a lot of them that have been fixed. And so uh, that's that's work that I'm really proud of. And it's one of the reasons that kind of keeps me working for Surfrider is really to help people make a difference um, in, in, in our coast and our ocean. Yeah, I know you all are working on some other important stuff. Um, Coast Range Association's partnered on for years in the past, uh, the Oregon Marine Reserve. Uh, program. And then I know you're also working on Rocky Shores stuff a lot. Maybe you could give us a, just a brief overview of those two um, initiatives. Sure. One of our big initiatives for Surfrider Foundation is ocean protection. And we've obviously, that's one of the, um, probably one of the key areas where we've be a, been a partner with the Coast Range Association and many other organizations. Um, marine reserves and protected areas is a very, very long process uh, for a lot, a lot of us. Uh, we have five marine reserves and associated protected areas around those. 
Um, and Coast Range Association, Surfrider, and us were all part of about a 10 to 12 year process to get those established and designated, um, which were a wonderful addition to our coast and sort of fits under our ocean protection initiative at Surfrider. Uh, another area um, for ocean protection that we're working on currently is, is rocky habitat uh, protection. And so in Oregon's near shore, we have sort of a, uh, what's, what's known as the territorial sea plan. And, and for all intensive purposes, that is a, a, a plan or the law of the sea from zero to three miles. And part of that uh, establishes uh, certain protections for rocky habitats. So those tide pools that people are familiar with as marine gardens, or you've heard of research reserves before, um, those little small pocket protected areas, separate and very different from our marine reserve and protected area system. But those little marine gardens and rocky habitat areas are going through a process right now um, for, uh, for the public to designate or amend uh, current designations. And so I'm, I'm very involved in that. In fact, I chair the working group for the Ocean Policy Advisory Council um, that's in charge of that process right now. Nice. Yeah, I was interested to see that um, the the mapping that y'all put together in some of the what what is the how do people get engaged with that? I was curious and it seemed like there was a really cool opportunity for folks to like designate projects or, or could you explain that? Yeah, right now the on June first we actually launched the state of Oregon launched a public process um, for updating designations in the territorial sea plan under Part Three. So what does that mean? That means right now the public can look at existing marine gardens, research reserves, and propose amendments to those, like make them bigger or make them smaller, or they could propose that they could completely go away, or they could they could propose new protections uh, in new areas as marine gardens, uh, or what we're calling marine research areas or marine conservation areas. There's sort of three different categories and uh, the public's using, as you mentioned, there's a mapping tool. There's a new mapping tool that's out there um, that allows the public to really explore the coast, see the types of resources, so the plants, the animals, and also the people uses that exist in different areas. Uh, they can sort of draw a square or a polygon around a different area, and they can receive different information reports about what lives there and who uses those areas. And they can use it ultimately to propose um, a designation or to propose an amendment to a current designation. So this is really exciting to me. This is the first time we've ever had anything like this in Oregon. Um, previously, these types of things happened under executive orders and really lengthy processes of the Ocean Policy Advisory Council. This really puts it out into the public's hands and has a really cool tool that allows you to do this. And so um, this is the first time we're doing it. Uh, the public proposal process is open through the end of December, and you can find information about this on OregonOcean.info. The very first green button you'll see on that website says updating Oregon's rocky habitat and, and that strategy, and that, that'll, that'll take you right there. Uh, the tool is called SeaSketch, and so the tool is linked there, and you can get straight to the tool and start exploring. There's a forum on there as well, which you can exchange information and talk to other people who may have more information as you. Uh, and there's also been sort of like an expert list uploaded there too for individuals who may want to reach out to people who have more expertise on, say, you know, marine birds or marine mammals that live in a certain area than they do. 
Um, so check it out, um, OregonOcean.info. The first uh, little link you got there on the top is updating Oregon's Rocky Habitat Strategy. That's some really good information. I hope, hope folks go and check that out. Um, I wanted to ask you, Charlie, about maybe uh, helping folks uh, get a grip on what's what's currently happening on the coast in regards to climate change, um, future potential impacts, and, and maybe some uh, some of your work and how that inter- interconnects with the Surfrider's mission. Um, yeah, it's... It, it's a big topic, and um, but I, I we're really interested in trying to to uh, parse some of that out. Yeah, I mean, I can talk about some of the the intersectionality maybe of climate change with with our work and Surfrider um, and some of the the key issues that it it lands on and areas where it lands for us and our mission. Why don't we start with 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 beaches? Okay, uh, because yeah. the, the shoreline and beaches are an area that's really important to our membership. Um, and we can kind of roll into water quality and then sort of active uses of the beach um, and, and things like that. But I'd start with just shrinking beaches. Um, that's one of the bigger impacts to climate change of, of climate change that's going to intersect our mission. It is intersecting our mission already. Hmm. Um, scientists predict that sea level rise, you know, could go up to six feet by 2100. Um, so an increase that large would just completely swallow beaches um, and impact public access, recreation, healthy ecosystems. So we're, we're seeing beach erosion um, from increased storms. That's very present here in Oregon. That's something people are very, very familiar with. Yeah. And those things are really chipping away at our beaches. Um, and unfortunately, the response to a lot of that are seawalls or big bouldering projects that we know that we call riprap here in Oregon. Um, they, they install those to sort of protect the property behind them. But what they end up doing is really exacerbating the erosion of the beach and eventually taking the beach away. And we can really demonstrate some unwalkable beaches in Oregon at high tide because they were armored in this fashion and and adjacent beaches that weren't armored, um, are perfectly walkable. And so that is, that is a very direct impact um, to individuals and people that care about the, the coast uh, that, that, that intersects with our mission. And so that is an area where we work a lot on this, the idea of shoreline planning um, and really getting into this, um, you know, what does the future of our coast look like and how do we adaptively manage living on the coast? Um, we're going to have to have some trade-offs. And what does that look like? Does that mean moving things back? Um, and I think that we've got some really exciting processes in Oregon that allow people sort of scenario planning trade-offs are, you know, if we armor today, um, what do our beaches look like in 50 years? Um, if we don't armor today and move our houses, um, is that like, is it even possible to move a house, a bridge, um, a road? Uh, so these are all areas that require long-term planning and, um, you know, but what's most salient to a lot of people right now is my beach might not be here um, next generation, uh, for my kids to enjoy. So that's a, that's a, something that's really, uh, active for us. And there's, there's ways and campaigns actively that we're engaged in, uh, that allow people to make a difference there. Um, pollution, uh, is another area for climate change that really impacts our coasts. Uh, more rain, uh, can result in sewage overflows, um, urban runoff is, um, cascading into the ocean and these things, really impact um, our, our use and our enjoyment in the ecosystems. And so 
Um, in addition to sea level rise and coastal inundation, inundation um, those things can also um, override and overload sort of systems and infrastructure. So we've seen oftentimes these big high tide events push in and then they take a lot of things back out with them. Um, or these big storm surges take a lot of things back out with them. And we saw that from a tsunami event that happened on the other side of the world, hit our beaches here. So um, pollution, you know, from these, uh, you know, coastal inundation and also from increased storm activity is something that's actively impacting our coast. Um, yeah, and- now, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so these are these are not, you know, the future of impacts of climate change. These are things that are happening right now. Um, so that's really where we're trying to, to, to focus our membership and our individuals. Um, one big area of water quality, obviously, is ocean acidification. Um, and so and, and over one quarter of the CO2 emitted by burning fossil fuels is absorbed by ocean water. And so as a result of high concentration of carbon dioxide, um, it causes the oceans to acidify um, at pretty rapid rates. And we see this very directly in, in Oregon. In fact, this started you know, years ago um, to oyster uh, hatcheries. And so they were sort of the canary in the coal mine, if you will. And we saw that baby um, um, spat, baby oysters were, were not able to be reared. They were having problems forming their shell, and that was because the the water was too acidic that they were they were pulling in out of the bay at the hatchery. And so, um, you know, this mystery that I think they originally thought was maybe a virus or a bacteria or something it turns out that it's directly related to the amount of CO two that's being absorbed by our ocean, and that's directly related to how much we're putting into the atmosphere. So there's a very real uh, impact to climate change, and at what point will it affect shrimp? At what point will it affect major commercial fisheries like Dungeness crab? It already is. So as soon as we start to look for these things, we realize they're already here. It's not happening in the future. It's, it's impacting us right now. So pretty scary um, to think about those sorts of issues. Huge economic impacts on the coast. Uh, massive economic impacts to the coast. The Dungeness crab fishery and the commercial shrimp fishery in Oregon represent the two largest, um, you know, commodities for, for our coastal communities, for the state, really, when it comes to the ocean. And so um, it, that's, a, that's a big deal. Um, and, um, you know, I was talking about shrinking beaches. I mean, people come to the coast because there's a beach. Tourism is a big part of the coastal economy, too. So you take away fishing, you take away tourism, and there's not a lot of economy left. And these are the things that are today, climate change today, impacting our coasts and our ocean. Um, yeah. You know, I could go on and on. I, you know, like as recreational users that, that love to surf, we care about surf breaks. And surf breaks exist because of a certain bathymetry um, that on the bottom that um, exists with a certain amount of water above it. And if you change the amount of water above it, um, eventually it doesn't break anymore. Um, so surf breaks go away, important reef breaks that um, the World Surf League designs surf contests um, that are, you know, the World Surf League is traded on the stock market. Um, so um, there's, there's a, a lot of uh, economic impacts to, to, to climate change affecting recreational users, affecting coastal communities, affecting our ocean. And it's happening today. Yeah. 
Yeah. All these, and all these issues are totally interconnected. And what we choose to do in one arena is going to impact the fisheries or, you know, it's just, these are all interconnected. Um, being the Oregon policy manager for the, for Oregon Surfrider, um, what's maybe a brief like overview of what's happening on the state and maybe a little bit on the national level, as far as ocean and climate. In Oregon, we've had some limited opportunities to sort of link um, both policy at the state level um, and also sort of the current executive order um, with, with our ocean and our coasts. Um, namely, we, we've had a couple of pieces of, of um, bills, a couple of legislative efforts to try and fund uh, a more extensive network of monitoring for ocean acidification to build our better cases for science. Um, we do have an ocean acidification and hypoxia council here in the state of Oregon that was created. Um, so they're really honing in on those two issues, hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen in the water um, or low oxygen events that, that happen in the, in the ocean. Um, and then um, ocean acidification, which is obviously the, the lowering of the pH. Those are key impacts of climate change to the ocean that we built a council around. So this OAH council, as we would call it, um, has a suite of actions from building better data and monitoring so that we know what types of actions to take to mitigation efforts in restoring habitat, supporting resiliency, um, and investing in, in um, sort of, you know, blue carbon, if you will, um, habitats and ecosystems that maybe um, provide some uh, mitigation to CO2 in the water, um, sort of buffering. At the state level, the OAH Council provides a nice framework that really hones in on policy actions for those two key issues of climate change. And so that framework is, is, is much of what we're following um, as Surfrider Foundation to try and support legislation around. So one of the big efforts last, last year was what I, I dubbed sort of the, 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 the ocean climate bill um, because everybody was focused on the other climate bill um, and, it, and unfortunately, because of the other climate bill, um, the, the session ended early and things didn't quite make it across the finish line. A lot of other things did, but that one did not. Um, but it would have funded a great network of monitoring. It would have funded a lot of education um, and supported uh, a, a lot of research that probably would have given us um, more cause for creating local policies and local actions because of Oregon state land use goals and our framework, a lot of the actions are really possible at the local level as much as they are at the state level. And so, you know, we can talk a little bit about some of those local actions I think people can take. And um, a lot of that, when you talk with policymakers, they see that as a drop in the bucket. But my job is not to tell motivated activists that their efforts are a drop in the bucket. Um, my job is to tell them that a drop in the bucket is how you fill the bucket um, one drop at a time with a lot of them. And, I, and we can do that at the local level. So I think a lot of about adapting to climate change in Oregon is about advancing policies locally that provide for local resiliency and building systems locally that um, create some interdependence um, with each other, but also some independency um, with respect to energy creation, 
um, waste consumption and um, ultimately, you know, um, waste recovery and recycling. And we haven't really talked about plastic pollution and, and that being one of our major initiatives and, and how that aligns with climate change impacts. Um, so I can, you know, kind of get into a lot of little individual actions. And we do have what was called our climate activist toolkit at Surfrider that really does a great job of outlining how as an individual, you can take a big subject like this and, and make a difference. But kind of going back to your original question, the broad strokes at the state level, you know, our, our ocean acidification and hypoxia council has a nice framework of actions to address climate change impacts on our ocean and coast. Um, we're, we, we need some work and some legislative work to really address some of the adaptation and mitigation um, that's impacting shoreline planning, and that's yet to be addressed. In fact, we see more threats there than we do see um, opportunities to advance. Um, at the state level, you know, legislation has failed to address climate change. The executive order, um, however, does have some mandates around reducing um, uh, carbon emissions. And so what does that mean for us on the coast? Well, how are those monies redirected and how are they reinvested? And really it's about following those monies for reinvesting from, from carbon emissions um, in, in, in green. Um, renewable and, um, you know, uh, uh, resource jobs on the coast that we care about that align with our values and, and um, reduce our overall net carbon uh, emissions and consumption. So um, those are some of the opportunities I see kind of at the state and the, the local level. You know, at the federal level, um, it's, it's wildly complicated given there's um, uh, a number of sort of blue carbon type initiatives addressing climate change in our coasts. Um, there's a climate crisis action plan that sort of came out of, um, you know, uh, Re Representative or Congresswoman Bonamici's office. It's actually a really fantastic, it's got some fantastic sort of elements in there addressing coastal impacts and, and um, climate change. A lot of it's study and learning um, is, is much, as much as it is actions, but I think that they're really important steps. We can't take actions until we have the information that we need. And so, um, and it's a bipartisan action plan in a lot of ways. They, they brought some people together over that, that work, um, the, the stuff that's come out of the, the, um, the House Oceans Caucus has also provided some framework as well uh, for, for advancing, you know, around our coastal preservation initiative. So again, those are things like protecting beaches from overdevelopment and looking at resiliency opportunities. Um, that comes in the form of us passing big, big federal legislation that ultimately funds states to plan and do that hard work that I was talking about. The heavy lifting, um, those are changing state land use plans and goals and local land use plans and those take thousands of man hours to do that kind of work and they take public process. So we need money. The state needs money to pull those things off and, and coastal communities need the, the resources uh, and the guidance of, of, of good science to do that work. Nice. Yeah. That gives a really good context um, on all levels. Um, anything that I missed, you mentioned the, the plastics, we barely got into that. Plastic pollution is a huge issue for our oceans and our coasts and for surf riders and something that actually the, the, the elephant in the room that we don't talk about beyond the social justice issues that we finally started daylighting 
um, with, with the export of, of our quote unquote recycled materials is that plastic pollution fuels the climate crisis. Um, it's it's kind of easy to understand the problem with plastic when you see it littering your parks and your waterways and the oceans and beaches. And um, we can see, you know, terrible videos of the harm it does to like wildlife and straws being pulled out of turtles' noses and things like that. We can like actually hold this crap in our hands, but a lot of people don't realize that um, it the, the fossil fuel industry is the plastic industry. As if plastic pollution wasn't bad enough for all the things that we see it blighting in the environment and harms to wildlife. Uh, the, the recent report from the Center of a International Environmental Law found that the life cycle of plastic is a major source of greenhouse gas emissions and therefore a serious contributor to climate change. And when, when you look at the numbers in the report, it was actually astonishing. <laughs> According to the report, in 2019 alone, the production and incineration of plastic was equal to the emission from 189 coal power plants. Um, and what's even worse is that the plastic produ production is on the rise. It's, it's, it's actually projected at a rate of increase towards 2050, if, if that's the case on its current trajectory and the current investments of the industry. That number from 189 coal power plants operating is going to jump up to 615 coal power plants operating. Now, if we were making decisions about you know, coal right now, we wouldn't make that decision. We wouldn't say, hey, we're going to go from, you know, 189 coal power plants to 615 coal power plants in 2050. That's our objective. Um, we would never say that, right? But that's written on the wall. That's the investment and the capital production plan of plastic um, by 2050. That's where they'll be at if they're on target with their current rate of production and increase. Um, so that is just terrifying. And that's 20% of the global oil consumption. And then they end up in their in our ocean. So I mean, from from the beginning, um, you know, traditional plastic is, is formed by fossil fuels like natural gas. So that's, you know, how it's created these cracking facilities, um, you know, in the middle, um, you know, the refinement process of that plastic, the moving of that plastic, um, you know, that those emissions in 2015, uh, you know, a, a year in, in 2015, those emissions equaled the same amount as 45 million passenger vehicles um, driven just in one year. So that that gives you an idea of the, the industry. And, and then you want to talk about where this industry exists. I mean, Cancer Alley. So let's talk about a social justice issue. Um, you know, let, let's create these production facilities in places where we can skirt environmental laws. Why? Because it's a low income area where we're not going to get advocated against and policymakers will let us slide right in here. So, um, some of these places, you know, um, in the, in the middle, um, it, they don't just impact greenhouse gases, they impact people. And then at the end of the line, I don't need to really get into the end of the line. We all know what happens at the end of the line. There's no market for it. Um, and we don't know what to do with it. And a lot of it ends up in the environment. So, um, a big part of the, the, you know, global, <laughs> um, climate crisis is plastic pollution. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that's really important. I didn't, uh, some of those, those numbers, I, I didn't realize. Um, so we are talking about a lot of different things here. Um, but there is opportunity for folks to get involved. How do folks get involved with Surfrider Foundation in Oregon? Yeah, if folks want to get involved more with Surfrider, I invite you to check out our national website. It's uh, um, surfrider.org. 
Uh, you can find out about our, our national network. We actually have affiliates in other countries as well. Um, if you're interested here in Oregon and finding a little bit more about what we do here or connecting with any of our chapters, we have chapters in Portland, Coos Bay, Newport, up on the North Coast, um, and our Sioux chapters in, in Florence. And so, um, but, but really our network of membership is statewide. Um, Oregon.surfrider.org. You can learn more about what we do, our programs, or even how to volunteer because uh, there's two staff members uh, for us here in Oregon and for Surfrider. And, and everything else we do is powered and fueled by beautiful and wonderful volunteers uh, and Oregonians that care about our ocean and our coast. Awesome. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Visit their website and uh, looking forward to seeing folks uh, getting active on the coast. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Andrew.